This morning I'd like to challenge your thinking. And the thing about thinking is that we think that we're right. And we often go looking for evidence to support or justify our thinking. So right from the outset this morning, I want you to just put aside what you might think because sometimes what we think is wrong. We might think about uh, what could happen tomorrow or what might happen in the future and have a bit of an idea about that. Or we might be thinking about how certain events should run or how things should go in our life, how they should unfold, and uh, we might get it wrong. Just like on uh, the movie Back to the Future. And Back to the Future is a series of three movies. In the second one, which was made in 1989, it's about jumping forward to the future, to 2000. Anyone know the year? 2015. So... uh, Whoever created that, that movie had an idea of what 2015 was like. And we're going to have a look at a short clip from that and let's see how wrong their thinking is. So, gives us an idea, doesn't it? Did you see all the things that uh, someone thought about 2015 that haven't quite arrived yet? So I'm sure it won't be long we'll be able to uh, avoid the traffic snails by just flying over them. But uh, so often our thinking can be wrong. And uh, I don't know whether the... Uh, creators of Back to the Future thought that would really happen or whether this is all part of the movie or not. But when we read through Ephesians, as we have been doing, Paul corrects our thinking. And I want to look at Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. When we were reading through Ephesians chapter 1 and Pam was speaking with us last week, she was reminding us that um, Ephesians chapter 1 says that God has given us every spiritual blessing, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, can dwell in us. And chapter 1 gives us words of encouragement. It talks about that we have all we need, all the resources, all the authority and power to live a successful, powerful Christian life. Chapter 2 seems to be a little bit different in a sense. And um, we'll, just, we'll have a look at that this morning. Chapter 2 takes us back a step. If chapter 1 tells us all that is on offer, chapter 2 says, well, just hang on a moment. Let's just go back and let's do some thinking for a few moments. And, of course, our thinking stems from our beliefs. Example, I can believe that it's important to give And I can think that it's important to give, but do I go ahead and actually give? Sometimes we think these things but don't act on them. And I want to look at some things that can be at the core of our beliefs and really form our thinking and our actions and attitudes this morning. So it's going back to some basics. And I think if we have a look at some of these basic ideas that Paul is outlining in Ephesians 2, then we can be confident that our thinking and therefore our actions and our attitudes are also correct. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul uses the concept of a house, building a house. And so I thought it might be useful to look at Ephesians 2 with that same imagery. Now, the first thing when you're constructing a house is to level the ground. Bring in the bulldozers. Maybe that's what we need to do next Saturday at the church house, Jess. Just bring in the bulldozers. 
So if you've ever been involved in constructing a house or a building of some nature, you know that the first thing they'll do is level the ground. And that's where Paul starts as well. Let's have a look at the first few verses of that chapter. Verses 1 to 3. They'll be up on the screens there. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world. Have you got the verses there? I'm getting some singles from the back. That's fine. Follow through in your Bibles. No panic, guys. It's whatever you can manage up there. Verse 2. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we are subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. So Paul is clearing the block. He's stripping everything away, bringing in the bulldozer, going right back to basics. And when we get right back to that basic level, we were dead in sin. We were living sinful lives. And that's, that's the basic fact of how it was. Paul uses four phrases there to include all of us. He says, just like the rest of the world, all of us used to live that way, by our very nature, just like everyone else. Why does he remind us of that? Why does he come in, clear the block, get things level, and remind us of that? Just after in chapter 1, he's been talking about all power and authority comes to us. I think he's doing that because he wants to remind us never to forget where we were. Never to forget where we were. Not that we want to go back there, but to be aware that we have come from a life of sin Being dead in Christ helps to keep us grounded. It helps to give us the perspective, both individually in my life and also collectively as where we are as a church. And I think it's too easy to lose sight of where we've come from, why we're here, what is our purpose. And I believe if our core belief is that we have come from a sinful background then our daily lives and our thinking should reflect a sense of humility and thanksgiving. What more can we do if we really know and believe that we've come from being dead in sin and Christ has brought us forward to new life with him, then our lives have to reflect thanksgiving and humility. And if our thinking at times is anything different from that, I think our core belief is wrong that we're thinking the wrong way. As we read on in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, we go back to our house analogy. After levelling the block, and it's all clear, and we're right back to that basic, the next thing that happens in construction is preparing the foundations. And sometimes they're dug in trenches and filled with cement, and uh, other times they're foundations that might rise out of the ground. But that's the next step. And Paul talks about our foundation. Verses 4 and 5. But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, that's clearing that block, getting it level, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. 
That's our foundation. We continue in verse 8 and 9. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. So no one can boast about it. The things that stand out in those passages for me is that God is merciful. Yes, we were dead in sin. We deserved nothing from God, but his mercy was available to us. That he loved us so much, but it's through Jesus that God did the work in giving us new life. It's nothing that we have done. If that's a core belief, if that's at the heart of who we are and what we believe, then that will also impact our thinking. The verse says, we won't boast. It's on what Jesus has done. That's our foundation. He's the cornerstone so that we can't boast. Now, maybe at times we don't boast with words. I don't hear a lot of boastful people, any boastful people in this church. But sometimes we can have a sense of pride or self-satisfaction in who we are and what we achieve. And we might even achieve good things. We might achieve good things for our family, good things in our work, good things in our ministry, good things here in this church. But let's realize that it's built on the foundation of God's love and his mercy and his gift to us. It's not by what we've done. I was talking with a friend through the week and asking him about his church, the church that he attends. And I said, what appeals to you about your church? What do you like about your church? And he said, very simply, he said, people have a heart for God and no one is out for themselves. He said, no one is too precious. If someone has a certain job or a task and someone else comes in to do that, that's fine. No one's precious and prideful about what they do. Isn't it a wonderful attitude to have? That it's not about us. We don't hang on to things that we're doing, but we realise who we are and what we do all comes from God. So we don't boast. Now, when we're talking buildings, let's not forget the building plans. That's pretty important. You can't construct something without a plan, without knowing what's going on. And in verse 10 of chapter 2, we find out that God has plans for this building as well. Verse 10 says, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So he's the one who has the building plans. We are his masterpiece and his plan for us to do things. Do you believe that? Is that really a core belief in your heart that God has created you a masterpiece and he's got things planned for you to do? Because if you really believe that, that will affect your thinking as well. And it becomes evident in the way we talk about our lives and the lives of the people around us. Everyone has a purpose through God. No one is useless. No one is not good enough. No one is hopeless. In verse 2 of chapter 12, Paul writes, You lived in this world without God and without hope, but now you've been united with Christ Jesus. The author of a book I was recently reading said, Hopelessness is a key symptom of a starved soul. 
of someone who hungers for something more. And the most common response to a starved soul is the yearning to feel good. The urge to feel good at all times then shapes our lives and our character. We don't have to feel hopeless if we know that God has created us for a purpose, that we are part of his masterpiece, then we don't have to have that sense of hopelessness. And I think too often we get things around the wrong way. When we feel good about life, when things are going well, then we feel we have a purpose and a plan and a sense of direction. But the truth is that we are part of God's masterpiece. He has a plan for our lives to do the good works that he has prepared for us, whether we're feeling good or not. And if that's at our core belief, that will change our thinking. That core value, that understanding that God has a purpose and a plan for us, is the reason to get out of bed every morning. But it's the reason to get out of bed with a sense of hope. It's the reason to get out of bed even if life's a bit tough or even if life is very tough. Because we are united in Christ, because we're united in Christ, we have a sense of hope and a sense of purpose in God, the master builder. So if the block is cleared and level, we have a plan, foundations have been laid, Well, we need some building materials, don't we? And the rest of chapter 2, I believe Paul emphasises what the building materials are. Very simply, it's us. And Paul writes to the Jews and to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are simply the non-Jewish people. And he says that we all belong together. We are all becoming the temple of God. Verse 19 He writes to the people in Ephesus who were Gentiles, non-Jews. He says, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of the family. They are no longer strangers in a foreign land. I remember as as an older teenager, my family... um, Mum, Dad and myself and three siblings went on a holiday to Tasmania. And um, we visited a church um, on a certain Sunday. We were, we were there and just, uh, you know, little town somewhere in Tassie. I forget the name of the town, but uh, we thought we'll go along to the local church. So we were strangers in a foreign land, as Tasmania is often known. And after church, this sweet old lady came up to me. And uh, she said, oh, you're visiting, are you? And I said, yes, I'm here with mum, dad and brothers and sisters. Ah, she says, well, uh, I, I hope some young people come and talk to you. And off she went. <laughs> and I respect the fact that she was trying to make me feel welcome and she didn't know quite what to say. But not being a stranger is more than just being welcomed at church, isn't it? It's much deeper than that. The word that Paul uses when he talks about no longer being strangers and foreigners comes from, uh, is the Greek word xenos, and from that comes our word xenophobia. If you're looking that up, it's a X-E-N, not a Z-E-N, xenophobia. And if you have xenophobia, you have a fear of, anyone know? 
A fear of foreigners, strangers, people who are different. Um, that's being xenophobic. In one historical document written at the time, a person recorded a foreigner who was in another country, it's better for you to be in your own homes, whatever that may be, than to be in a strange land. So a foreigner in those days was regarded with suspicion and dislike and distrust. But Paul is saying, you're no longer foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You're all members of the family. And it was new thinking given the history of separation and bitterness between those two groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles. And so Paul is saying, in this house of God that God is building, you are the raw materials. And together you create something that is new and better than ever before. I love verse 21 of chapter 2. Paul writes, we are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Carefully joined together. Have you considered what that means? That doesn't mean we've been put together by chance. The master builder has carefully, carefully chosen the materials that he needs for his construction. And we are the materials, carefully chosen. Even if some people here rub other people here the wrong way. We've been carefully chosen to build God's church. Even if there's people here that, well, you might rather avoid because they, I don't know, you just don't see eye to eye about something. Or that you might find confrontational. Maybe they just drive you plain crazy. Or maybe, uh, you know, if it was a reality show, North Lake Survivor, you'd want to vote someone off the island. <laughs> but realise that God has brought each of us here together. Paul's writing to the Jews and the Gentiles saying, all of you are part of God's family, carefully chosen. North Lakes, all of you are part of God's family, carefully chosen. Do you know, a hermit might live in peace, but they're not going to grow as a person. In Proverbs 27, verse 17, the Bible reminds us that as iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. And maybe even those who aren't friends are the ones who sharpen us the most at times. We can avoid the friction and the sparks if we want to. We can keep away from one another. But we won't become sharp instruments for God. I haven't done much building in my life. I built the kids a cubby house in our former place that we lived in. Our current house, with a lot of assistance, I built a deck. But I can tell you for sure that I didn't buy materials that I didn't need. I didn't want to spend money on timber that was going to lie in the backyard and waste after the building was completed. I didn't buy 27 packets of nails when 20 packets of nails would do the job. I only bought a new drill because the other one burnt out. I didn't then go and buy another one or another power tool just in case I needed it. And I'm sure if you've built things you've done the same. But the materials I did buy, I had to cut. I had to drill holes in them. That's always good fun. There's just a sense of satisfaction about a bloke doing that kind of stuff. But the point is that we are God's raw materials, being built in the house, carefully joined together, and sometimes we have to be cut. And sometimes we've got to be filed. And sometimes we need a hole drilled in us to make some sense out of who we are and what we're doing. 
God has work to do on us so that we can fit carefully together. That can hurt. That can be uncomfortable. But we can't lose sight of the purpose that God is making us become more Christ-like so that we can take our part in the church. Now, if this is a core belief that you have, it will change your thinking. It will change the way you view other people and the challenges that we have from being with other people. It will make you think, instead of that person who's driving me crazy, what is God trying to teach me through my interactions with that person? What is it about my personality or my character or nature that I need to learn? But of course, being with others isn't always about challenges, is it? We have great times together. Psalm 133 verse 1 says, How wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters and other family members live together in harmony. And if our core belief is that God has placed us together carefully for a purpose, then we'll value the good times that we have together all the more as well and appreciate being being together. How can we work towards becoming one? Well, I don't believe it's about thinking the same or looking the same or speaking the same or acting the same or being clones of one another. It's not about a loss of identity or even submission of one opinion to another. I believe it's about having the same heartbeat for God, bringing together who you are for him to use. That's what being one's all about. If you've read through Ephesians and skipping ahead, you know that the later chapters of Ephesians talk specifically about how we can be one, how we can be united and be together. But Colossians chapter 3 verse 13 says, Make allowances for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. So if that's a core belief, then that will affect our thinking and our actions as well, won't it? So we have a clear level block. We have plans, we have foundations, we have building materials, and so on goes the house until it reaches completion. Have you ever thought why God builds the church? Why does he do this? Why does he bring us all together? Well, I'm sure there are many reasons, but in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7 gives us a clue as well. Verse 7 tells us that God is doing all of this so he can point to us in the future, going back to the future, point to us in future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards others as shown in all that he's done for us who are united in Christ Jesus. So as we stand as the church of God, as a structure, as a group of people, God can point to us in future generations and say, that is an example of my grace and my love and mercy. Have a look at those people from North Lakes. Have a look at them. They're part of the body of Christ. And when you look at them and see how they are living, loving one another, what they're learning, how they're growing, what they're doing for me, doesn't that remind you of my goodness? If they can be like that, you can do that too. Doesn't that remind you of my mercy? Can you see where these people are? They were sinners, dead to sin, but look at them now, alive in me. 
So if we are that kind of people, God in the future can point to us and say, here is an example of the body of Christ at work. So have you ever considered that? Is that a core belief? That God can use you and collectively use us as an example of his goodness and his grace and his mercy. If that's at the heart of what, believe, or what we believe, that's going to change our thinking as well, isn't it? Our thinking is that we're not just here at church to take a turn on a roster from time to time. We're not just here at church to run an event or do a job. These are important things to happen. But we're here at church to become one, to be a future example of what God does in the people's lives. If that's a core belief, then our day-to-day lives must be an example that God can point to and say, here's Graham. He doesn't get it all right all the time, but God can say, look at what he's doing for me. Here's Max, great guy. God can say, here's an example of someone who knows what my love is about. Here's Lachlan, or here's Dan. Oh, Dan, Eliza, good to see you guys. Here's Joseph, here's Matt, Andrew. Examples of what I'm doing. Here's North Lakes, here's an example. We have to live and be that example that God can use. If you've ever been involved in building, you like to see a construction timeline. You like to know that this is when the block is cleared, this is when the foundations are poured. This is when the materials are being delivered on site. This is when the construction happens. This is when it's at lock-up stage. This is when the painters are coming. This is when this is happening. This is when this is happening. And this is when you can move in. I think this is where the analogy I've chosen this morning falls short. I don't think God works on a straight timeline when it comes to building us and building our lives. And if we think it is, then at times we might feel frustrated. Well, I'm only here on God's timeline. I really should be here. Or it can give us a sense of judgment. Well, I've been through all of this and I'm here. And look at that person. They're only back down there. Or it can cause us to think that we're failing. Well, I used to be here. Now I'm way back here. Though I don't think God works that way. I'd rather see his construction timeline as a circle. That we are enveloped in his love. That we are a project that is ongoing. The Bible says we are becoming this temple. Not that we've made it yet. But if we realise that we are somewhere in that circle, somewhere in God's plan, surrounded by his love then I think that gets rid of that sense of frustration that we're not moving quickly enough in life. Or that sense of self-condemnation. That sense of guilt that sometimes can creep in. But if we realise we're somewhere in that construction plan, I think that's a, uh, a better way to look at it. Just enveloped by his love. His love that knows no boundaries. His love that we can never escape from. So, my prayer this morning is that your challenge, your thinking has been challenged in some way. That uh, you consider what really are the core beliefs that you have, that you base your thoughts and your words and your actions upon. 
It's all there in Ephesians. It's a great book. If you haven't yet read ahead, please do so. It's not cheating. It's okay to do that. It's not like turning to the answers at the back of the book. So if you haven't done that, please do so and see what God is speaking to you. Open up your mind. Realize that your thinking can be wrong. That can come from your core beliefs. And look at the Bible and say, God, I want my beliefs, what I base my life on, to be true. True to your word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are part of your church. That we are being built to be the body of Christ. To be your holy temple. And that all of us have a part in that. Father, I pray that you will challenge our thinking to challenge what it is that we base our thinking on and that the core beliefs of our life will be based on a firm foundation of you. God, I thank you for each person here at church this morning and those who are part of our family who are not with us this morning. Thank you that you've placed them here for a reason, that you've carefully joined us together. And as we continue to grow and be an effective part of your body here at North Lakes, help us to make allowances for each other's faults, to value each other, to love each other, to grow with one another and to be your servants. Father, I pray that in the future, you can use us as an example. Not for any other reason, but an example of people who love you and serve you and are sinners forgiven by you. Father, we thank you that you are merciful to us. Amen.